0: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following
1: program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit
0: Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
1: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I have two guests this morning, two guests coming up. Our first guest is Dr. Hansen, Dr. William Hansen. He's author of Smart Medicine: How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare. And Dr. Hansen is professor of anesthesia and critical care, and the chief medical information officer at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also been referred to as a medical futurist. Our second guest is a PhD and a lawyer and a former Playboy bunny, Victoria Wilson, author of the Thirty Day sex solution, how to build intimacy, enhance your sex life, and strengthen your relationship in one month's time. But first, our first guest is here with us, uh, Smart Medicine, how the changing role of doctors will revolutionize healthcare. Dr. William Hansen. nice to have you on the show this morning.
2: Thank you so much. How are you? I'm well. How are you?
1: Good. I am great. Okay. Future, you've been described, as I said, as a medical futurist. Uh, what, what does that mean?
2: Well, I think in, in, uh, in my case, what that means is uh, someone who's uh, lived in a uh, cutting edge medical center. I, uh, I'm an, an academic medical center where we do a lot of uh, high end procedures and therapies. And uh, someone who thinks about uh, what the future might look like in terms of practice patterns, uh, the, the kinds of people that enter the medical profession nursing professions, et cetera, and um, how we might be providing care in an era where um, cost becomes a major issue and uh, outcomes and the measurement of outcomes becomes very important.
1: So, Dr. Hansen, we're talking about revolutionizing or revolutionary health care. Let's kind of break that down, and what are we talking about specifically? In what areas are we going to see these revolutions happening in medicine? In
2: our healthcare, well, yeah. So I mean, I think one uh, major revolution that we're, we're in the midst of is we're converting from uh, a world of uh, paper record keeping to one that's that's much more electronic. But I think it's it's useful to frame um, what's happening in terms of <clears throat> the revolution in terms of the people who are currently practicing medicine. There's a generation of physicians that. Um, Uh, are at the latter end of their careers. These are people who've grown up in an era where the physician was uh, sort of a a high priest and had uh, information that the patient didn't have access to, and uh, the uh, physician documented on uh, paper and uh, didn't have access to as much in the way of testing as we have today. And... um, uh, was not very familiar with electronic uh, communications. And then there's a second generation, the, the younger generation, and about half of uh, uh, the profession represents the older group and half the younger. The younger folks are very technologically savvy. Um, they grew up in an era where uh, teams were emphasized more in, in health care than individuals. Um, they were not... <clears throat> trained in the apprentice model these were folks that uh, have had uh, work hours restrictions so that they didn't work uh, day in and day out overnight um, throughout their residency so Uh, you're saying
1: saying, Dr. Hanson this group the second group you're talking about uh, comes from a different mindset than the older group which is going to die out or retire anyway so we're going to get these younger guys and gals or young doctors uh, involved in when you talk about revolutionary medicine or uh, electronic uh, records, for instance. And I just, I'm going to add a piece to that because I just, uh, two days ago, I went to my doctor for my yearly checkup and I got handed a sheet of paper and it's a huge, it's like a big business, his office. And it's, it, you know, the uh, secretary or whatever, the assistant, she handed me a piece of paper and I had a sign off saying that I wanted my records to be um, shared electronically. And so I was real excited about that, so I signed it. But then it also said, and I want you to address this. Uh, it means that all my records, and that includes if I have HIV/AIDS, if I've had an abortion, if I've had, you know, been taking drugs, if I have some kind of a genetic defect, all of that goes on the electronic record. So I guess insurance companies also have access to that. I'm not sure. I decided I didn't care. I was—I mean, I have nothing to hide, and I sign the thing, and it makes it. And I travel a lot around the world, so this is a good thing for me to have. But
2: can you address that? Yeah. Well. Um... There is a, there is sort of a uh, a need to be comprehensive in terms of a transition from a paper record to a an electronic record, and this brings up uh, a whole family of issues that uh, you know you've mentioned. One aspect of um, we had somebody um, that I became aware of recently who was. Um, whose records were uh uh converted from paper to electronic and it turned out that he had a uh, substance abuse issue and was not aware of the fact that that would show up in his electronic record and uh we had to struggle with that but it doesn't it doesn't uh do the patient any service or the providers any service to hide certain pieces of information and in uh, locations where they can't be accessed, if they're well, what about for the insurance care?
1: companies? It's fine for the doctor. Or at least in my case, I I feel, um, yeah, the doctors can share the information. That's fine. But what about the insurance companies?
2: Well, I have to be honest. I'm not sure to what extent um, we uh, share um, uh, specific as- aspects of, um, of uh, things like HIV status and and substance abuse history and abortions and the like with insurance companies. I know that there is a a premium on a very thoughtful approach to each one of these um, specific issues. I think that there's more emphasis on privacy and the security of information in healthcare now than there was even 10 years ago, when you might find uh, uh, piles of uh, old paper charts lying in hallways outside of a doctor's office. I think we're yeah, much more a the person who's cleaning
1: the offices at night ha- access, has Absolutely. access to that information. I've worked yep. in hospitals and I, I've seen exactly what you're saying and I've been you know in hospital situations where all the records are out and anybody who passes by I mean a slight exaggeration but maybe not too much and they can look at all the records so
2: they can look at the records and that they you know there, there's a possibility that the same records might get lost or burned or uh, damaged by a flood so I think we're in, in a much better position in a lot of ways now than we were uh, in uh, in uh, decades past but having said that the fact that these me- records are electronic does make them available uh, from a distance and from potentially hostile or, or unfriendly um, uh, intruders or hackers. I think that the medical records, by and large, the, the breaches of, uh, of private information have not been uh, prominent in the medical industry, much more so in, in other industries as we've seen recently.
1: But you're mentioning the differences between healthcare providers, differences between the older generation of physicians and the younger generation. And I was noted, my doctor's of the older generation, he's 64. And I noticed he's sitting there with his computer, but I, he doesn't really use it well. (laughs) And it takes him a long time, and I'm not, and he seems to be asking me the same questions that he asked the last time I was there, which was a year ago. And so I'm not sure how well he's adjusted to using the computerized system, whereas if I go to a younger doctor, uh, it's a very different situation because they do know what they're doing with the electronic equipment.
2: Yeah, and I think that this is one of these. Now, I will, I will say that there are plenty of uh, elder uh, statesmen in my organization who are very <laughs> fast nice with computers, and there are some Luddites in the younger generation. But for uh, general purposes, I think it's useful to think about the fact that we're in a sea change right now in, in medicine. And, um, you know, the electronic aspect of it is only a piece of it. There's also this sense of, um you know, the doctor as uh, sort of high priest versus the doctor as a member of a team of professionals, including nurses, pharmacists, social workers, respiratory therapists, et cetera, that, uh, it's a new model. And I think it's uh, it's likely to um, uh, provide us with greater safety and, and benefits in the long term.
1: Yeah, it has greater checks and balances, and I think it's also, you know, it's difficult to, it's almost impossible to see the physician as the high priest of medicine because now the general population we have all we have access to the information that maybe 20 years ago we didn't have access to. Or you're not going to go through medical books or go to the library and look up, you know, it's too tedious. Look up maybe perhaps
2: your disease. Well, or whatever. Yeah, both tedious and the language was was difficult was, to understand. But you're absolutely right. Now a lot of that information has been translated into user friendly terms. It's available on the internet. It's available through a variety of resources.
1: And. We're being at the pharmaceutical companies are advertising to us, the lay people, which I, I'm not sure that I, I think is a good idea, but so if I'm watching all these advertisements at 6 o'clock in the evening till 9 o'clock at night or beyond, I go and I look up the drug and I, and I have access, and so before I see my physician, I'm going to talk and he's going to recommend or perhaps prescribe a medication I've already researched it.
2: Right now, you know, so the pharmacy uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies are advertising. Doctors are advertising. Hospitals are advertising. Malpractice lawyers are advertising. It's a there's a whole uh, uh, atmosphere around us having to do with uh, medical care. It's it's good things. It's bad things. And then the pharmaceutical companies, in turn, um, on the web may uh, put web a website up that doesn't appear to be an advertisement. It appears to be a sort of an information providing service, but the Small print suggests that the, the, the underwriting organization is one of the big pharma companies. So there's, there's explicit and implicit uh, agendas that are playing out that uh, we all need to be attentive to.
1: So how do you feel about that, the pharmaceutical companies advertising to the public, the general public? Good thing or bad thing? What do you think?
2: Well, um, I personally think that there is too much... Uh, advertisement of pharmaceutical materials on uh, television uh, uh, screens, billboards, and uh, too much of the wrong sort. I, I think I do think that there, uh, that the physician and the research community uh, needs to get out in front of, or needs to be the conduit through which this information travels, because as we all know, um, every week there's a new drug that um, there's a warning on. Uh, <clears throat> uh, unexpected side effects, uh, new information, uh, about, um, problems with a drug. And that's where I think it's important to have a physician or a healthcare provider who's current with that latest information to provide recommendations there. I don't think it's in the interest of the drug companies to put that information out in front of their audience. So you have unfiltered information coming directly to a, a consumer audience that may not know enough to, um, sort the wheat from the chaff.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you on that one. I, um, You know, I think you have a lot of patients going to doctors that kind of begging for medication or, you know, from the stuff that they see on television. And, um, you know, it sets up a whole, I think, uh, kind of a morass of... It's a waste of time, I think, sometimes. I think that because we as consumers don't necessarily know how to interpret all
2: this stuff. Right. Well, um, I mean, a perfect example of this is the whole uh, overuse of antibiotics, which is... Um... Parents feel the need to do something for their sick child, so they want uh, a medication for somebody who may their child may have a viral illness. So they put tremendous amount of pressure on the healthcare provider to prescribe an antibiotic when it's uh, unneeded, maybe be uh, uh, inappropriate, and then ultimately there are downside. Downsides in terms of resistant organisms and the like. So, the that, just one in, example in, in of...
1: defense of parents, because when I was doing my parenting when the kids were under five years old, the medical community or the American Board of Pediatrics recommended that you, if you have ear, you know, for, especially for ear infections, was uh, somehow was a big thing uh, in the eighties. Um, that you take as a as a uh, prophylactic or precautionary, you take. an antibiotic, uh, even if the ear infection was viral so that you would prevent it from the kid getting a bacterial infection, so they would give it to you. And I used to say, well, why do you have, can't we just wait? I mean, I was kind of on the side of the way, (laughs) I always wanted to wait with medication and sometimes, half the time, I wouldn't even give them the medication, but that was the rule of thumb. And so that's taken a, you know, 360 degree turn or whatever.
2: Well, yes, it has. I mean, and now the, the even with uh, some um, bacterial infections, I think they're they're much more conservative in terms of prescribing antibiotics. So, you know, medical information uh, changes, and uh, new research shows that uh, the old ways are not necessarily always the good ways, and that's that's constant in medicine. That we're constantly reevaluating approaches that were felt to be um, state-of-the-art uh, five years ago. And that's why it's important to have both uh, physicians and other healthcare providers that are current in their information. But the other thing that we can do with these new electronic systems is to embed state-of-the-art best practice information in those systems. So when uh, a doctor, for example, puts a diagnosis of ear infection into an electronic medical record, state-of-the-art information may come out um best practice guidelines, decision support, indicating that the the latest recommendations are don't prescribe antibiotics or, um, you know, whatever the other, uh, uh, whatever the disease process may be. So we can put um, sort of uh, additional expertise in these electronic systems to keep uh, physicians up to date who who might not be, you know, reading uh, every bit of literature about every disease problem they encounter.
1: But Dr. Hansen, don't you think also you know, you're talking about best practices and how they change so quickly, perhaps because, you know, science goes, you know, we have access to the information faster or the, the medical community does. Don't you think it also, it's important, because if you're talking about an educated um, consumer group and uh, or patient group, that they too have to be alerted to the fact that this is best practice as of today and maybe next year it won't be, Because I think that sometimes patients get confused, and they not all, because there are many who are, you know, constantly uh, uh, doing research themselves. But so that, you know, it's not taken as the word of God, so to speak, because the recommendation next year may change, that patients need to know that as well.
2: Yeah, well, I think what you're speaking to is the fact that uh, we're all better (laughs) off with a well-educated, um, attentive uh, consumer audience, our patients. So the better uh, prepared, uh, the better educated uh, our patients are about their, their health, whatever uh, medical problems they have, how to maintain their health, um, the more ownership our patients have in their health problems, the better. So uh, if you know that eating properly and not smoking and exercising and all of these sorts of things are uh, uh ways for you to take ownership in your own health and that physicians are providing that kind of information uh we're all better off it. and I, also i think that the whole concept of best practice is something that isn't necessarily out there in everybody's mind at this point and the fact that best practices do change and evolve as as uh, medical information goes forward so i think we do need to get that idea out there that um, that we are um we're trying to, to identify not the way Dr. So-and-so likes to do it versus the way Dr. Uh, and Such likes to do it. It's that there is some uh, best practice that's recognized from um, research and, and professional societies.
1: What do you think of this? This is an issue that I've had for <clears throat> several years, but I, and I'm, kind of, I'm going to go back to this appointment that I had at the doctor's a couple days ago. And I walk into this, it's a huge practice, I don't know, let's say 15, 20 doctors, and so of course there's a huge staff, Um, and you know, you wait in line to check in, and there are about 10 different booths, and I would say that at least 80% of this physician, and he himself is overweight, but most of his staff are obese,
0: (laughs) And I
1: am, because I'm sitting there looking around, and of course, and I'm, you know, I'm always observing and thinking about, well, you know, I'm going to have you on the show. I'm going to ask you this question. (laughs) I mean, don't, you talk about taking responsibility for your own health, you know, exercise and diet. What do you think of a physician uh, who hires, and he himself is at least 25 pounds overweight? Okay, I'll give him that, but his staff, I mean, are these I'm talking about obesity, 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds, overweight. Now, what is, should he be hiring p- uh, professionals?
2: Well, you know, it's an interesting question that you're asking because I, I work in a a big uh, hospital with um, seven or 800 beds, and we have um, a lot of uh, providers, some of whom are also, um, frankly, obese and uh, um unlike other industries where uh i think there has been um, a thoughtful approach to providing exercise facilities and support for exercise and uh good healthy food in the cafeteria sometimes we serve uh way too much in the way of fried foods or um, uh, uh greasy foods um, and uh an emphasis on Making it a smoke-free environment. We've gone that way, obviously, in our hospital, but you still see employees smoking outside of the hospital. I think uh, the hospital industry has not been a great example of um, how to approach that. The medical industry in general, and uh, there is uh, we're lagging behind other industries that have put, um, for example, um, uh, uh, penalties in place if you're a smoker. Um, I, I think that's that's coming around in the healthcare industry. And I think we'll see more in the way of uh, emphasis on weight loss and uh, other programs. But it is surprising. I think he points something out, which is that for a profession that really ought to be setting the example, um, the industry at large hasn't done that. And um, I think we uh, owe it to our patients to to pay more attention to that.
1: Yeah, it, and it's a way – Uh, the doctor is sitting with me and he said oh your BMI is fine. 21, 22 whatever it was and I'm looking at him and thinking well I'm sure yours yours isn't but but I didn't say that yeah the only thin person in that office was his nurse or one of the nurses who came in to do the EKG and she was she was really the only thin person there but I think it's a huge it's like the elephant in the room because I think that you talk about smoking addiction that is definitely a problem or alcohol or drugs but food addiction is uh, to me what's the leading is the it's really going to be the downfall of our country because we're unhealthy unhealthy i and and uh and if the 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 system that's supposed to be taking care of us is unhealthy i can't see how that's you know where we're going to go with that in in a good way
2: yeah well you know uh, just as an interesting sort of uh, look at me i haven't the... seen
1: what you look like <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> okay, good.
1: I'm not going to um, ask you your BMI. But,
2: uh, looking from the inside out, you know, we've gone to, in, in our hospital, we've had to uh, totally uh, revamp our furniture so that uh, we can have furniture that doesn't collapse under the weight of our patients or uh, their visitors. Uh, we've had to uh, buy new wheelchairs, uh, new stretchers, new OR tables. we put overhead hoists over every bed in the uh, hospital to help the nurses with moving our patients who are uh, larger and larger. And we now have a whole um, uh, line service line that has to do with bariatric, which is the term we use in medicine for overweight patients, both in terms of uh, medical and surgical management of these patients. And I agree with you. It's, it's an epidemic that was absolutely not the case 20 years ago.
1: So what if you're doing, though, is you are, from a social work uh, perspective, you are enabling these patients because you are providing bigger chairs and bigger beds and overhead hoists <clears throat> rather than dealing with the problem. You're just kind of at your uh, – enabling is really the word. I, I took my 87-year-old mother, 86-year-old mother, to get a uh, um, surgery for her eye, uh, cataract surgery. And so we go into the doctor's office or so we go into the facility and there's this huge – well, we thought it was a couch – the two of us sat down in it, and it was really a chair for one right. person. It yep. would look like a love seat. But uh, uh, I think by instituting all of those uh, things that you just mentioned in, in the hospitals or in the healthcare facilities, you're kind of just enabling the, the, the illness, aren't you?
2: Well, I don't know that we're enabling I mean, I think the hospital has to respond to, uh, with uh, safety <laughs> measures for folks. I mean, when you have a a patient who's waiting for discharge who's obese and then chair collapses, um, and that results in a uh, uh, sort of all-hands-on-deck response to somebody who's down on the floor, that's a problem. So I think we need to be attentive to this, and, and we also have to look after our healthcare workers and making sure that they, they're able to safely manage these patients. And when you're managing a three or 400-pound patient, patient and you're a 110-pound a, a nurse, uh, that's a little bit of a problem. But I think your point's well taken. I think that the, the roots of, the, of this issue uh, go much deeper than the hospital industry. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a national problem, and it has to do with the kind of food that we subsidize by subsidizing sugar production. Um, you know, we're not doing anybody any services. But I think, you know, you're onto something that's going to be a big health care problem for us. Uh, and it, uh, to say it's the downfall of a country may be a little strong, but not too far off. I mean, there's a, a growing diabetes epidemic. Um, uh, the costs associated with uh, obesity are—we we, we have not even begun to see yet. I don't think.
1: Yeah, and and it seems to me that's only getting worse. I just learned recently, and uh, maybe you are aware of this. Maybe you know this, but apparently, if we uh, a couple or at least the mother uh, wants to adopt a baby from China, and I'm assuming it's a girl because I don't think they let us adopt their boys. Um, you have to have a certain uh, a certain BMI. It can't be over a certain number, or you are not allowed to adopt, or it is illegal to adopt a baby from China. Now, the number is fairly high, but there mm-hmm. is there is a, a certain BMI restriction. Did you know that?
2: Did not know that. And is that being imposed by, uh, by the Chinese or by the... <laughs> By China, the yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, with all of that, um, I don't think this is an exclusively American problem. The, the world Chinese are seeing uh, the same issues as they as their diet goes from uh, what it had been to a more Western diet, and certainly every country in the world is seeing uh, obesity as an issue. So, um, it's it's a big international problem.
1: So how would you and I think it's a, it is it, it's a huge problem and that's literally and figuratively but right. uh, you know and you know as you travel around the world though I think that and, and I don't know what the statistics are but I do think at least just visually we look like the fattest country to me <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm that's with not you I would agree evidence based
1: that. that's anecdotal but still uh, I think we are uh, I think it's a huge and, and, and when you talk about revolutionizing medicine, I'm thinking how what can you do? I mean, I think this has to be addressed. I guess.
2: Well, I agree with you hundred percent on that, and I think that uh, you know what we what we tend to do in medicine uh, all too often is treat the uh, the symptom, um, or we do what I what I think of as crisis management medicine, which is to handle the problem once it's become a big problem, rather than trying to get at the problem. Uh, as it's emerging or before it develops, we don't do a lot of prophylactic or uh, preventative health care in this country, and I think that many of our dollars would be better spent on that kind of care than it would be on uh, addressing some of these things when they're um, fully developed.
1: yeah, well, could we do talk about prevention, but I as you say, I don't think we do too much about it Good,
2: you know, good service yep.
1: yeah well, we only have a couple few more minutes a couple minutes left, so. Um let's talk about maybe we just bring up you know we want uh, listeners to buy the book uh, Smart Medicine How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare there's so much more that Dr. Hansen talks about in the book I mean we just kind of you know honed in on one issue but um, let's Dr. Hansen, just give us one of um, perhaps one of the other things that's happening in medicine, just in a couple minutes, because I think what I'm interested in actually um, the role of technology in terms of being able to do uh, make a diagnosis over you know just over a computer, or you can get information to a doctor no matter where you are in the world, that kind of thing.
2: Right. So I think that um, medicine has historically been pretty provincial or localized to the doctor's office, the paper records in that spot, and uh, a physical encounter between a patient and the doctor. And if patient has the problem elsewhere, those records are historically have been unavailable or the doctor's unavailable to help out with that patient. So we're beginning to see much more in the way of um, telemedicine, where a physician can help care for a patient who's at quite a distance. In fact, there was something about uh, physician, um, a neurologist helping a patient with Parkinson's located hundreds of miles away on uh, NPR the other day. And um, uh, I run or have run in the past an intensive care telemedicine service where the intensive care doctor is located in one location and looking after patients in three ICUs uh, during those vulnerable hours at night um, and using smart software to identify patients who are getting into trouble. Um, I think that uh, that whole area of uh, medicine at a distance is only just beginning to uh, evolve, and uh, in conjunction with that, the use of smartphones to facilitate communications and interactions between patients and doctors is just in its infancy at this point.
1: Yeah, I think that's amazing, uh, Just, and I think that's one of the... The, the best things that medicine has to offer. It's kind of that, it takes a little bit from that, you know, it started out, I think, in academics, you know, the online learning, which, uh, you know, yeah. I, I do that on occasion, and I think that's great. This is kind of a, a similar thing, I guess, um, which is emerging in terms of healthcare and medicine. A um, couple more minutes. Tell us where we can get your book, what website we should go to.
2: Um, well, the, well, I think the book is available on all of the big um Uh, online providers as well as in the bookstores, so uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, bookstores like that, and uh, uh, certainly in your local uh, uh, bricks-and-mortar bookstores as well.
1: Whatever is left of
2: them. Whatever is left of them, exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. You can walk on over there if you can still walk. But anyway, uh, Smart Medicine, How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare, Dr. William Hansen, is the author and he's professor of anesthesia and critical care and the chief medical information uh, officer at the university of pennsylvania school of medicine thanks so much for being on the show today
2: thanks for having me
1: yeah i really enjoyed talking to you likewise yeah coming up next is uh... well we have a different topic coming up next the 30-day sex solution dr victoria wilson she's a psychologist an attorney and a former Playboy bunny. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker, with the microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio.
0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica or search for us at keyword voiceamerica. in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Eldonna Ambler. On the show, Aldona and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain. firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio on The Catherine Zox Show. My next guest, Dr. Victoria Zedrock-Wilson. Zedrock, Z-D-R-O-K-Wilson, Ph.D. She's a psychologist a lawyer and a former Playboy bunny and author with her husband of the 30-Day Sex Solution, How to Build Intimacy, Enhance Your Sex Life, and Strengthen Your Relationship in One Month's Time. That's a one month's time is a huge order. Uh, And according to statistics that uh, I got from Dr. Wilson, which was done by Georgia State, this is like really, I don't think it uh, surprises me, but 15% of married couples have had not Have not had sex in a year. That's fifteen percent of married couples. Uh, Maybe they haven't had sex with each other, but I have to ask: maybe they've had sex with other people. But anyway, and uh, twenty percent of these married people have been intimate only ten times in the past year. So the name we give to them is semi celibate. But uh, first, here is Dr. Wilson. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much. And those are horrible statistics.
3: Conservative statistic. I've heard. um, much higher numbers of sexless marriages and of course this is um, we're not mentioning how many people are having sex are really satisfied how much of these uh, sexual encounters are really passionate versus just going through the marital motion
1: so what about a, what about a statistic that says 10% of married 10% of married couples have had sex you know 3 to 4 times a week and also have had satisfying sex relations do we have any statistics that say that
3: no, I, I haven't found any, but that's a whole other problem because I've come through. A, um, there's a lot of statistics out there that particularly women uh, often report a, a high degree of dissatisfaction uh, with their, um, you know, marital and sexual activity. They find uh, it's, you know, they. they uh, I think it's something like thirty percent of women have orgasm thirty percent of the time, so it's pretty low. Uh, and uh, I think that's way, the, I felt there was a need for the book because we, uh, in our clinical practice, and some of it is also personal experience, we found that the passion of the initial encounter wears off rather quickly in the first couple of years. And then unless you find a way of uh, bringing back some of the excitement, some of the limerence, some of the... You know, some of that romance—it uh, it does become—you uh, fall into the very boring sexual script.
1: So you said that this is personal, Victoria. That are you talking about your relationship with your husband? It was great in the beginning, and then it, as it kind of p- petered out, literally after a while. i mean, after the first year, second year got boring, and then so you had yeah, to do something. It, you know, I think what happens, and I think that happens to everyone.
3: Um, you're very passionate about each other in the beginning and that's the lust, delirium stage, what psychologists call it, limerence, usually it lasts between 18 and 36 months and that's when the dopamine and adrenaline is high. You get the butterflies in the stomach when you see the person and you just can't wait to rip each other's clothes off. But it always wears off. I always tell couples, no matter how crazy you are about each other, you know, give it a few years, and and uh, you—it's not the love. The love remains, as a matter of fact, it transitions into attachment phase, but that initial passion will not be there, and it will require some effort to keep sex exciting and interesting. And this book is about
1: how to bring back some of that uh, that romance and passion. And you have several suggestions, obviously, in the book, uh, in order for us to do that. Um, You want to talk about, well, the first one that you mentioned is the priority factor. What is the priority factor? This is something that you have to do if you want to get back in bed together and have a satisfying sex relationship.
3: Yeah, well, the book is divided in five parts, and each part is integral to bringing back uh, some, you know, the desire and passion. And the first one is a priority factor. then we have intimacy, novelty, naughtiness, and loftiness. And the priority is crucial because what happens is people get busy. We're overworked, underslept nation. You know, once people have dual careers, they you want to start having children, or elderly parents, a lot of social responsibilities, a lot of electronic media distractions. It just be, sex is just not a priority. A lot of people would rather watch TV, and so this uh, part, first part, is really about. The factors, how to make it a priority, we have a contract there, Um, we have, we suggest the date nights and surprise nights, and we talk about um, the diet and the exercise and fitness component, all the things that go into bringing back the libido, Uh, and it's it's very crucial because for most married
1: couples with children, it becomes, uh, sex is the last thing on their mind. Well, so it's the last thing on their mind for most people, you say, and statistics prove that out, so you're going to... By reading this book and following what you know what we're supposed to do in the book, you're going to make sex the first thing on your mind with your co- with your partner. Exactly, um, and that and that is something
3: that I talk about. You know, a lot of husbands will come home after a long day of work, and then they expect their wife to be in the mood for sex. And and wives been you know whether she's been working or taking care of the house, and women still do with dual careers still do ninety percent of household chores. Uh, they're tired, and it's not you know they're not going to. Female sexuality is receptive. It's not spontaneous. So I suggest that couples um, keep in touch throughout the day. It's a little... When you text, you know, send sexy messages to each other. Leave it on your phone, uh, you know, maybe text a picture. Of yeah, your well, look what happened to, to Anthony Weiner doing that. Maybe, but who knows who gets it, a hold of it. Well, the thing is, if you're doing it with your partner, that's what I suggest instead of getting a temptation of uh, sending it to someone you don't know. The idea is t- to turn your marriage into an affair. So the book is really how do you turn your own marriage, your own uh, relationship into an affair to make it feel that interesting, that novel, that taboo, that exciting. And so I tell people, you know, maintain that sexual playfulness, that flirtation uh, throughout the day because when we first meet each other, we, you know, we flirt, we seduce our partner. We forget all that. We stop dating. I tell people never stop dating seduce your partner throughout the day with sexy messages and so forth. And, so would you and say I think that, that uh,
1: like it, say with your partner, your spouse, you should have um, you can have phone sex during the day. Is that a good thing? Uh, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you uh you know, any ways
3: that you could maintain the, the key is whatever you do it, and when the sexual thoughts spontaneously arise, include your partner into it. And there's a whole chapter into, you know, erotic intimacy about sexual fantasies and how to include your partner into your into your sexual fantasies. So if you can get away together throughout the day for, you know, in, during the day for a quickie, that's wonderful. If you can't, uh, and if you're in the mood for sex, you know, have some phone sex with your partner. Talk sexy to him or her. Uh, so keep that connection, that fire burning, because... Uh, You know, women are like fire. It takes a while to get us started. Men are like firemen. They're usually always ready for sex. But women are like fire. It does take a while to get us started. But once you get them started, they burn with great intensity. But don't expect... Tell husbands, don't expect your wife after a long, hard day, you know, get turned on just like that. If you want her to be turned on, keep her turned on throughout the day. Tell her how beautiful she is, how much you desire her, you know, surprise her with maybe lingerie or maybe with, uh, you know, her favorite erotic novel, whatever she likes. But keep that fire, that spark going rather than expect her to, to all of a sudden uh, feel that passion for you, you know. At the but end of the long day, but you sound way.
1: like it, then it's the man's responsibility to keep the the passion going, or at least this what you're saying. Like you have to tell her she's beautiful, and you know, you know, bring well, her gifts it, or whatever. it goes both yeah. ways because yeah. for a man, you know, a man, uh, and and this is where on the
3: intimacy component, I talk about the five A's uh, of erotic intimacy, and that's attention, affection, appreciation, affirmation, and adoration. And yes, women need maybe more adoration, maybe a little more attention. Men need the appreciation. They need to be told, "I'm really thankful for everything you do for this family. I know you work hard, and you know." And they they also need the um, to be feel desired and wanted, and to say, "You know, you're still sexy. I still think of you all the time." Uh, it, It really goes both ways. It's an effort that a couple needs to keep each other feeling. Um, you know, feel, feeling that attention. We shouldn't make our turn our, our partners into a habit, and that's what happens. A lot of people, you know, they'll come home and they'll hardly notice their partner. I always tell them the first thing when you come home, it's a 30-second hug us uninterrupted, 30 seconds of uninterrupted hug, connecting the, the heart chakras, feeling the energy exchange, and really taking that moment to reconnect. Um, Because, unfortunately, in long-term relationships, people feel taken for granted. And that's where a lot of resentment grows, a lot of reasons why people seek affairs, because they want the attention. They want someone to, you know, admire and adore them and
1: uh, and appreciate. But I think there's another piece to that. I think there's another piece to that. I think that it's not just that they seek affairs or and maybe I'm saying men, but I think women do too. I don't think they admit to affairs in the same way that men do, But and I don't know what the statistics are on that, but I think that men begin to see their wives and as 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 mothers and, and as connected to the children. And when they start Absolutely. doing that from there, that, then they don't see them as lovers, as mm-hmm. someone to be intimate with, as someone to have, like, you know, phone sex with or to to have a quickie with during the day and they seek somebody else outside that realm who satisfies that need. And so I think that it's not necessarily... uh, It's a very difficult thing for men to make the transition from, you know, some sexy lady to, uh, you know, a mother, you know... Nursing a You're baby absolutely or. right, and I address that in the
3: book, and I, we call it actually in psychology the Madonna whore dichotomy. And for a lot of men, it's once a, you know the mother, once the wife becomes the mother, she becomes the Madonna, and therefore uh, it almost feels uncomfortable. It feels shame and guilt about seeing them in this sexual way, and it stems a lot of it from in general discomfort and issues with uh, sexuality and shame and guilt surrounding it so i always tell them that your you don't you know you your wife is both she is the madonna but she is also the whore in the bedroom and you can see her both and it doesn't have to be this dichotomous you know good girl bad girl uh, and it takes a little effort and and i think it takes some playfulness on the part of a woman to show uh, her husband that you know she still has those desires she still you know, she she's still naughty. She could she could be the dirty girl he wants in the bedroom, um, but yeah, it's absolutely and the Madonna whore economy is very damaging to relationships. Uh, and and you know, once men see you in the Madonna way, then they um, then they they can't. Feel that kind of dirty desire for you. Um, So I do address it. There is a a chapter on that and sort of different ways in which a couple can deal with it. But if a man has a deeply ingrained dichotomy, then he probably needs to go into some individual therapy and examine where it comes from. Where is that shame? Why can't one be the dirty girl and the mother? What, you know, where does this, and usually it has to do with some childhood issues with his own mother.
1: So you're talking about, I guess, in the vernacular is romance rehab. I want you to address this because in the Huffington Post, I guess there was a study recently um, that talks about the fact that maybe infidelity infidelity, could be genetic. Is, is it genetic? Yes. What do you... Well, a lot of our personality
3: traits are genetic. Uh, we do have predisposition to... Um, say gregariousness, some are extroverts, some are introverts. And and just like anything else, infidelity does have a genetic component. And what it has to do with is more of a sensation seeking, which has been known to have a genetic component. Um, That is, some people tend to seek novel stimuli and, and get habituated to stimuli faster than others. Uh, and it has to do with the dopamine noradrenaline pathway. And so some people get addicted to that feeling of novelty. You know, when you first meet someone, the the, do- the brain produces this big dopamine rush. It's almost like a drug. And, and then when they, you know, after a while, they get to know the sexual partner, um, the dopamine, the brain stops producing the dopamine rush. So it has to do with the some of the dopamine response in the brain and why some people will go out and seek out everything from roller coasters to all kinds of thrilling experiences while others are perfectly content to be homebodies, you know. So um, infidelity has that component. But, again, I tell people uh, genetics is not our destiny. We can be predisposed to alcoholism. There is a, a lot of research showing that there is a genetic Connection to substance abuse, and, and there is such thing as an addictive personality. Some people, again, brain response tend to get addicted to substances more. But it doesn't have to be our genetic destiny. We have uh, free will. We have cerebral cortex which can override our genetics. We can, you know, there's a lot of genetic impulses that we can override, and uh, so we don't have to succumb to that. If some people simply get bored easily and that's where the infidelity comes from and that's why for them it's even more important to have a partner who is willing to engage in sex exploration, who is open minded, who
1: is willing to engage in role play and so forth to make that sex life exciting and not boring. So let's discuss some of these high-profile people who have recently been in the news for infidelity like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Anthony Weiner and Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the uh, former head of the International Monetary Fund. What happened to them? Do they have spouses who – well, first of all, did they succumb to their uh, infidelity genetic predisposition or do they have spouses who just weren't interested Or, I think, think from a practical point of view, do they have spouses who they don't spend too much time with simply because they're both high-powered people? I know that, uh, for instance, uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, you know, his wife is is a journalist, and Anthony Weiner's wife is one of Hillary Clinton's major left, you know, major uh, uh, assistants, and, of course, Maria Shriver has a life of her own, too. Do you think that kind of... Impl- sort of had an impact on whether or not they were going to be with somebody else, these guys?
3: Well, I think there's uh, several factors that come into play, but the main factor here, we're talking about very narcissistic men here. Men in power, uh, first of all, people who strive to be in politics and power already have a narcissistic predisposition. That's why they seek out the, you know, the... Um, Attention of the crowd, that's why they want to be in power. So we're talking about some of it is is plain and simple narcissistic entitlement. It's feeling like, well, I'm better than everybody else. I'm above the rules. I should, I'm entitled to instant gratification. I feel horny. I should have my urge satisfied because I am Arnold Schwarzenegger, because I am so and so. So power is very corrupting um, to the mind and, and already these people have those, the narcissistic personality traits. So that, that's the first component. These men um, also probably have high testosterone level because testosterone is correlated with dominance. It's correlated with, um, uh, you know, people in politics have usually have high testosterone. Uh, and it also correlated with uh, high sexual content uh, of their thoughts. So we're dealing like with you know very uh, narcissistic men on high testosterone, probably wives who are busy, maybe somewhat conservative, maybe unwilling to satisfy some of their you know more kinky or sexual fetishes. And um, so it, again, it also goes back to maybe maybe these couples didn't have a good erotic communication. Maybe their husbands didn't feel comfortable sharing some of the sexual fantasies, and so they turned to other women who they felt were more likely to satisfy them. I mean, this is all conjecture, but again, we're dealing with, you have to remember the, the, the narcissistic entitlement component here. It's almost like, you know, the world is my oyster. Uh, it, you know, I, I shouldn't have to wait. I need instant gratification. And, and uh, feeling like a spit
1: to all these people, like they're above the rules. The rules don't apply to them. Uh, but so maybe some of the, their rules mm-hmm. do apply to them, as you say, for men in those positions. I mean, if you look at history, if you look at the Bible, and if you take us from the beginning of, you know, the, the written word, it seems to me that that has traditionally been the behavior of men who are in powerful positions. Exactly. There is a historical
3: component. I mean, the, the rich, the powerful have always had harems. They always had concubines. Uh, it's almost like there is this uh, collective subconscious of powerful men where they feel they're entitled to more than one woman. And so um, I, I wouldn't even blame their wives. I'm not sure that it would have made that much of a difference uh, had their wives been, you know, more naughty, playful, more sexually explorative. I think at this point we're really talking about the personality disorder of these men. These are megalomaniacs, and um, they feel the world is, is theirs for the taking, um, so um, I don't know that it would have made, I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily a genetic infidelity component. Uh, I'm really looking more of a personality disorder type here.
1: And I wonder if each one of those men has, is, is, there's a different set of circumstances. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's was an ongoing relationship with his maid who he took care of also and took care of her, their son. Whereas you take some, I mean, this is, you know, what I read about in the papers, I don't have access to the the truth, obviously, but the Dominique Strauss-Kahn is a different situation taking advantage or allegedly taking advantage of a, a maid in a hotel room. So aren't they, are they one and the same in terms of what their motivations are or are we generalizing somewhat? And of course, and Anthony Weiner was, as we know, which is only on the net. And as my, you know, it was interesting. Well, that's from I have, what we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we know. Well, let's take it that we only know that he was on the net. And I was discussing this with my 26 year old son. And he said, you know, there's a real difference. There's a real kind of digital divide with, with generations. He said, the younger generation does that all the time. If that's mm-hmm. very common to do, to, you know, to send pictures oh, of yourself Oh, is the extremely
3: net. common. I agree with you. And that's why, I mean, I have it as a big component of my book. And that's why I say do it with your partner. Uh, have that kind of playful sexual. It's a big, for men in particular, it's a big fantasy to, to receive digital, sexy digital images. But if your partner is willing to do that, and, and the truth is, a sexually satisfied man is much less likely to be straying. Uh, It's just as simple as that. If a man is satisfied, it's kind of hard to be looking out there. So I I do believe in Wiener's case, there was some maybe sexual incompatibility. Uh, There was some definitely or lack of erotic communication. I mean, I think that they would have definitely benefited from our book, The 30-Day Sex (laughs) Solution. Um, because it seems like uh, he was in sort of the, the first stage of infidelity, where it's more explorative and it's more the need for affirmation of your desirability. Like he wanted these women to affirm that his, you know, physique was nice, that he was well
1: hung, all these kind of issues. But I think Victoria, it's very and this uh, this is another piece of the whole thing today. And you're talking about these narcissistic men, women also are out there in the real world with their jobs, and some of them very high-powered jobs. And if you aren't together, I mean, you know, just physically not together, and your lives are not entwined because you lead very separate kinds of lives outside your home, I think it's very difficult then to get together, and to maintain that kind of uh, sexual intimacy, and um, it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's and it's and I think the, our culture uh, is set up so that uh, everything we have everything working against us. Yeah, you're so right. Absolutely, everything from
3: we are the most overworked nations. American work than uh, more hours than any other industrialized nation take the fewest vacation. We're most mo- most overspent nation. We constantly feel we need to make more to spend more. Uh, we're um, the most underslept nation. And, um, and the so most we're overweight. Overweight. Fat, oh, yes, obese. On top of it, uh, Yeah, exercise, exactly. We're getting the least exercise. We don't walk. We're in the cars. We eat a lot of junk food. So all of this contributes to that divide between us. And, of course, all the electronic media, uh, you know, all of this... Um, And just uh, keeps more and more of a divide. And it is hard with dual careers, with children, with ailing parents, with all the social responsibilities to keep connected. And the book is about managing to maintain that connection. So it's really even not so much about sex, but is about making it as a couple. And The book has actually been crucial for our marriage. We had, and, not, and our marriage was not bad, but we had improved our marriage one hundred percent as a result of writing this book because, uh, you know, we realized all the little things we weren't doing for each other. And I have this whole concept of a, a tr- imagine you have a treasure chest, uh, and this treasure chest. The, the coins you put in are good acts that you do for your partner. Little things, big things, they're gold coins. And each time you put in a gold coin, it's, it's for the future security of your relationship. And so next time you have a fight, next time you have a disagreement, next time you're feeling disconnected, that's when you draw those coins from that treasure chest. And so every day, remembering to put something in because there'll be many times when you have to draw from it. And when it's empty... It's very hard to get reconnected again. Uh, and so we have a lot of these kind of, um, um, sort of, uh, uh, these, these symbolic, um, uh, you know, imagery that helps couple keep connected and keep them, you know, uh, get rid of grudges, uh, and really, really get to the point where you feel like you're soulmates.
1: Well, Dr. Victoria zidrock Wilson, thanks. So the 30 day sex solution, I have to say, thank you very much. And also, 30 days is you know that does fit into our culture. So you have a solution here that you can accomplish, even if you only accomplish half of it. But at least it's only it can be done in 30 days. So that fits right into our culture of being able to get done. Thing, get things done quickly. And, uh,
3: Everybody wants things fast. You know, I was discussing it with a woman. She was very excited about it. And, and me, her husband turned around to me and said, 30 days? That's too long. <laughs> so he wanted it like in two days. I said, well, I'm sorry. It's like a, a, a fitness program. You can't expect to get back in shape in, in less than 30 days, that's usually, and the research shows that it takes two weeks
1: for anything to become habitual. So whether well, you, it takes two weeks if you, you're know, taking a medication to get, kind of get into your system. So I, I think 30 days is great. I mean, it's a 30-day investment for hopefully maybe a 30-year marriage or more. So um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. We can go to what website so that listeners can get more information? Yes, it's 30daysexsolution.com. Great. Thanks. Great talking Thank you you. so much. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show, and it's uh, been on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, I hope you had a good morning. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.